I am going to go ahead and predict that no single NFT is going to sell for more than $25 million this year on any platform. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Well, here we are at the beginning of a new year. A time that I seem to remember used to be full of hope and anticipation, but now, after the past two years, kind of makes you want to take a deep breath and brace yourself for impact. Not to be pessimistic. There are all kinds of fascinating, encouraging developments underway all around us, and as always, there's an awful lot to be grateful for. For instance, I am grateful to work alongside an authentically magical human being. I mean this literally. Of course, here I'm talking about Tim Schneider the art business editor at Artnet News, who, as longtime listeners know, undergoes a mystical transformation at the beginning of every new year to become a soothsayer capable of peering into the future to see what the months ahead hold for the art industry. I kid you not. In fact, it's amazing the government hasn't gotten a hold of him yet for gruesome laboratory testing. Anywho, today, to talk about what the year ahead holds for us, I'm very happy to have Tim Schneider on the show. Welcome back to the Art Angle, oh wondrous Tim. Hey, Andrew. So how's your prognosticatory prowess feeling today? Well, I literally just had to turn in the column that we're here to talk about like 15 minutes before we started recording. So like right now, <laughs> I don't know. It's probably too close to call. Uh, let's, let's just say that it feels like I'm really in the middle of it. How about that? Okay, well, as has become tradition here, let's begin by reestablishing your oracular bona fides by looking back on how your predictions for 2021 panned out. As usual, I forget exactly what you foresaw last year, but I'm guessing you must have nailed the whole NFT phenomenon and the market dominance of somebody named Beeple, right? Well, Andrew, if that was the case, I would now be much too wealthy for you to be able to afford to have me on this podcast. So I think in this case, we should all be thankful that uh, I didn't see that one coming at all. So what was one prediction that was on target that you were particularly pleased with? Well, this is sort of an interesting one in relation to the whole Beeple NFT phenomenon, because my favorite prediction from last year, which seemed really subversive at the time, was that Cause would outsell every individual old master except Sandro Botticelli by value at auction worldwide. And I was right about that. But the idea that a street artist would outsell the old masters now looks, frankly, really quaint and provincial and kind of cute in comparison to what has sort of become, I don't know, the new chief antagonist of like the old art establishment, meaning crypto art, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, nevertheless, I got that one right. What would you say was your biggest misfire? Well, every year that I do this, there's usually one prediction that I look back on a year later and I just go, well, that was stupid. Like, why, why did I think that that even had a chance? And that addition for this particular set of predictions was that there would be multiple dealers who would phase out their online viewing rooms. I basically think that I got so fed up with the entire online viewing room industrial complex that I sort of like let my emotions take over and really just lost sight of the fact that it's actually really easy to maintain one of these things. And the benefit of potentially being able to sell 
something by just updating a web page a few times a year is like a no-brainer in terms of uh, the value of keeping it going long-term. Okay, let's move on to 2022. Please, Tim, before we get into any specifics, can you at least tell me on a macro level, is this going to be a good year for the art industry? Well, it'll definitely be a good year for some people in the art industry. Who those people will be and how good a year it will be for everybody else is probably a, a more relevant question. But I mean, if you're just talking about art sales, then yeah, I still think it will be a pretty good year. But there's a lot of dimension to that, obviously, that we can get into and dissect a little bit. All right. Lay it on me. What is prediction number one? So let's just start with the prediction that is still, I think, front of mind for most people listening to this podcast, which is about the impact of COVID. So right now, I'm saying that every major art fair this year will still require attendees to wear masks and present proof of COVID vaccination or negative test or proof of sufficient antibodies. So that's kind of depressing because aren't they saying that Omicron with its higher transmissibility but lower virulence is going to essentially end the pandemic by making COVID a manageable endemic virus? I mean, why do you think we're going to be keeping such comprehensive COVID safeguards going for so long? Well, just because I don't think that there's a lot of downside to doing it, I think just from a pure liability standpoint, no fair organizer is really going to be super eager to be the one to say, you know what, we're just going to take off all those pandemic controls that we put in place. And also, even if they felt the personal impetus to do that, I think that we also have to keep in mind that all of these art fairs are partnerships that have to subscribe to whatever the state and local and federal guidelines are for large gatherings at that point. And so even if if you had some art fair organizer somewhere who, I don't know, spent the past year listening to Joe Rogan and believed that COVID was completely a hoax, they wouldn't really be able to operate in most places if they wanted to follow that particular line of thinking about things, because government officials would just be like, no, no, you can't do that or you can't hold the event. I wonder, what do you think is going to be the first fair to rip off the Band-Aid, so to speak, when things are clear and allow people to finally attend unmasked? Are your predictions so fine-grained and advanced into the future that you can foresee that? I don't think so. I, again, I don't think that we're going to see anyone do it this year. I just think that the pandemic is going to have to so clearly be in the rearview mirror that there's no question about it. I guess I would say that it would probably be a fair that is going to be in the U.S. just because the U.S. has been the most, if you want to put a positive spin on it, pro-business. You could also say in a lot of ways anti-public health. But I think that that probably means that one of the majors in the U.S., so maybe Freeze New York or Freeze L.A. or Art Basel Miami Beach, but regardless, I don't think it's going to reveal itself until 2023. Okay, hit me with another prediction. What's next coming down the pike? So let's switch gears a little bit. Another prediction that I have is that Western art sellers will announce more physical expansions in Seoul, South Korea, than in any other city on Earth. So that might come as a surprise to some listeners because Seoul is not really considered a major stop on the international art circuit as of yet. So why are you so bullish on Seoul? Well, 
it's becoming more and more of a destination. And part of this is also about just the development cycle of international dealers, especially coming into East Asia, where there's just been unbelievable amount of business being done. The reality is just that at this point, pretty much every major art dealer and even several dealers kind of in the next tier down have a permanent space in Hong Kong already. And Hong Kong is becoming an increasingly difficult place to do business these days. And for that reason, I think that you have several major players in the art world who are looking around and saying like, well, where else can we be in this area? that maybe is a little earlier and makes us first movers or something closer to first movers than Hong Kong. And I think that Seoul is emerging or arguably already has emerged as the exact right place for that. Just to name a few of the dealers that have already either announced or already opened spaces in Seoul in the past year or so, you're looking at Gladstone, Koenig, Lehman Maupin expanded there, Pace, is going to open a second gallery in the city, Periton, Tadeus Ropak. It just, the list kind of goes on. And that sounds like a lot, but it's not so many that there aren't plenty more who can still manage to pile in, especially once you are building off of the momentum of Freeze Soul getting ready to debut there later on this year. Well, as somebody who always likes uh, new art capitals to spring up in culinary wonderlands, this is great news to me. So... Do you have any predictions that maybe touch on perhaps the, the auction uh, sphere? As a matter of fact, I do, Andrew. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> maybe you're the mind reader. So this is sort of a two-part prediction. Part one is that Sotheby's will go public again this year. Part two is that it will not go higher from a share price perspective than $63 before the end of the year. Okay, so I know you and I remember when Patrick Drahi first took over as the owner of Sotheby's because we recorded an Art Angle episode about it way back in November of 2019. So remind me, who is Patrick Drahi again? And is his taking Sotheby's public, if that is to happen, would that be a surprise? So Patrick Drahi is a billionaire telecom magnate who sort of emerged out of nowhere to make a bid for Sotheby's, again, as you said, back in 2019. And at that point, he was really kind of a mysterious figure to a lot of people in the art world. He wasn't really a well-established collector. And he is sort of known in some circles as the cost killer because he has just a hard-edged track record of coming into companies and just slicing budgets down to the bone and really working in ways that are both, I think, smart and ruthless to wring every drop of value he can out of these companies and in the process, like also making them very profitable or at least much more profitable than they were in the past. And what makes you think that now is the time for him to take this public? So back in mid-December, Bloomberg News reported that Drahi was at least having exploratory conversations about the prospect of taking Sotheby's 
public again. I should say for the sake of journalistic integrity here that a Sotheby's spokesperson declined to, as they put it, comment on rumors or speculation about that issue. But it's also worth noting that Drahi has a long history of basically transitioning his other companies from public to private and back again whenever it's financially advantageous to do that. And pretty much across the board, it's hard to argue that Sotheby's hasn't become much more valuable during the time that he has actually been in charge of the company. So from that perspective and just from the fact that the IPO market was really active in 2021, it sort of seems like it's the perfect time for a guy like Drahi, who is always looking to maximize the value of every asset to go ahead and make this move. Hmm. And that'd be fascinating because it would be the opposite of what you see in a lot of media takeovers, for instance, in newspapers, where somebody comes in and cuts something to the bone and then discards it as basically a husk. This would be actually revitalizing a historic brand and making it more valuable. So I've got to ask, why do you say, you know, given that Sotheby's is more valuable right now and why um, it could be very attractive on the public markets, why do you say that the share price will never top $63? So in general, my understanding of the way that this works is that when an investment bank sort of shepherds an IPO to market, that bank prices it so that on the first day, there will be what's called an IPO pop between 15 to 30% sometimes, like at the very high end. And so you're sort of pricing in the idea that this company is going to be available for less than what it's actually worth. Because the idea is that you want a bunch of people to buy it on the first day. Like the IPO is only as valuable as what investors are willing to pay for it and how many investors are willing to pay that price for it. So in the grand scheme of Sotheby's history on the public markets, its all-time high was $59, give or take. And that was right after Patrick Drahi sort of made public that he was going to buy the company. And once they finalized the acquisition that would involve taking the company private, he ultimately, or his company Bidfair, ultimately paid Sotheby's shareholders $57 per share. So we're dealing with like the best that Sotheby's stock has ever done in its history was south of $60. And I just can't see, especially when you factor in the sort of precedent of having this IPO pop right at the beginning, it just seems unlikely to me that in the course of the first year of this company going public again, that it is going to trade more than a few dollars above its all-time high. And honestly, I kind of feel like I was a little cowardly with saying it won't top 63. I kind of felt like maybe I should have said it won't top 60, but we'll just stick with this and, and see what happens. Give me another whiff of the old Delphic Vapors. What is your next prediction? I'm going to say that staff members at more U.S. art museums will vote to unionize 
but that the labor movement is not going to make any strides into the for-profit side of the art business. Okay, so the first half of that prediction makes a lot of sense, given that we've seen union drives having great success across major museums, from the Whitney to the Guggenheim to the Baltimore Museum. Now they're happening at the Art Institute of Chicago and elsewhere. But why not galleries and auction houses? It seems like there's something in the air, so why not these for-profit businesses? For one thing, it's just a, a matter of size. I mean, there are only a handful of galleries that employ more than a dozen or so workers. And auction houses obviously have huge staffs. And you can also look at places like, say, art services companies, like the big ones that are massive storage centers and art installers and all that kind of stuff. But you're still dealing with a pretty small number of businesses that I think are even eligible. Like you're not going to have a gallery that has a staff of three people and like two of them want to unionize and the other one doesn't. It's just kind of not in the conversation. But setting that aside, I think it's also dependent on the fact that there aren't really any clear templates for it. I think part of the reason that the museum unionization movement has picked up so much steam is that you now have all of these precedents and all these templates. And I'm sure that the organizers and the people who are interested in unionizing are sharing that information between institutions, et cetera, et cetera. And to my knowledge, there aren't really any major art world unions on the for-profit side of things. So if you don't have an automatic precedent, if you don't have a template in place, it just makes these things much harder to do. And you finally add in the fact that there are just, frankly, like really not that many of these jobs that are even available. I think that makes them seem very costly to potentially alienate your employer. And kind of throw all those things together. And it just seems to me like it's probably a little bit too soon. But if I'm wrong, that would be super interesting. I don't know. Maybe your prophetic powers are catching, but I'm getting this weird intimation that your next prediction has to do with something like a meeple or a steeple, a uh, gleeple. What's your next prediction? My next prediction is that Beeple, who you mentioned earlier in this podcast, aka Mike Winkleman, Beeple will sign with one of the big three entertainment agencies before he signs with a commercial gallery. So Beeple was arguably the hottest artist of 2021, and we've all heard about how the top mega galleries from Gagosian to Pace are allegedly all racing to sign him up. So why don't you think that he's going to just immediately go and sign with one of these glamorous, huge global galleries? Well, for starters, part of me just feels like if it was going to happen, it would have happened already. And so the pure fact that we are now into 2022 and this hasn't been made official makes it seem less likely. Now, I should note here that Beeple is opening a solo show with Jack Hanley Gallery in New York in March, but there are no definitive signs as of now that this will be an ongoing artist-dealer relationship. Hanley hasn't put out a press release announcing representation. Beeple is not listed on the artist's page of the gallery's website or anything like that. Either way, none of this means that Beeple won't still sign with a big gallery. I just think that he would probably prioritize the idea of signing with one of the major entertainment agencies out there first. And to clarify for people who don't necessarily know that lingo as well as they know the, the sort of nomenclature in, in the art world, like the big three entertainment agencies are 
Creative Artists Agency, which is CAA, United Talent Agency, which is UTA, and Endeavor, which is the company that now owns Freeze. So we know Beeple has been working with major auction houses like Christie's. He's been seen at art fairs. He seems to have a certain curiosity about these traditional art businesses. So why do you think that he would go to something so far afield from, you know, the traditional art world, like a movie studio or a talent agency? Well, I think that what we're seeing with these major NFT projects is that there is a way in which they are more interesting and more lucrative if you back up and just think about them as intellectual property that can be leveraged in other directions than of just looking at them as artworks in a very kind of old world way. The big precedent here is that Matt Hall and John Watkinson, who are the guys who co-founded Larva Labs, which is the company that's created the CryptoPunks, arguably the best-known NFT series in history at this point. Hall and Watkinson signed with UTA over the summer, and they specifically did it to try to, at least in terms of what UTA put in their press release, they did it to explore these ideas of licensing the artworks, the NFTs, the intellectual property, for any number of different things like video games or TV series or movies. You could do like branded collaborations and all these kinds of of other things that are not strictly speaking the art world, but that you have more and more artists who are interested in taking advantage of them. I mean, again, we have to remind ourselves here that UTA actually has a specific division called UTA Fine Art that is specifically for managing fine artists and helping them do these kinds of licensing deals and transmedia collaborations and all this other kind of stuff. So I think that personally, if I was people, I would probably prioritize that side of things. And then I can just take my time with trying to create the best deal I can for myself at a traditional gallery if I really want to go that route. So just to prod this a little bit more, I can see very easily something like Larva Labs and their CryptoPunks property or, you know, the Board Ape Yacht Club being very franchisable as, say, you know, a animated series or even like a world, you know, for animated films. But people, his work is very in your face. It is uh, a lot of disturbing imagery. A lot of this imagery actually is borrowed from legacy Hollywood studios like Pixar. So what kind of application do you think he would have in this kind of broader, more streaming entertainment world? Well, I think it's a mistake to think about the, let's say, non-mainstream friendly aspects of Beeple's work, if you're trying to think about where this goes. The reality of the way that media has gone, I think, over the course of the past several years, certainly since Netflix and Amazon became arguably the most important movie studios and TV studios in the game, you really have the idea that extremely niche content can actually become very valuable. And so I I think that you certainly have to be selective with what you do with Beeple's work. But I think that he has proven to be prolific enough and creative enough that there are opportunities to embrace this. 
for instance, he sold a piece directly through Christie's in November. It was his first ever sculpture called Human One, and it depicted this sort of life-sized astronaut embedded in this almost phone booth-like structure that was surrounded by these video screens that were going to constantly cycle a variety of different environments that you would see this astronaut figure walking through. And I don't know, he could take that in a very NSFW direction if he wanted to, but I think that he's smart enough and savvy enough and frankly has gotten enough flack for some of the more problematic elements of his past work to be able to adjust and say, okay, there's something I can do with the body of work that I've created or the body of work that I will create that will play in these other sandbox as well. So you're talking about something that's edgy, but also, you know, has mass application, kind of like a, a, a Beeple and Butthead, right? I think that that is a great example. <laughs> okay, so do you have any other crypto art predictions for 2022? As a matter of fact, I do. Speaking of Beeple and NFTs and big prices and all that kind of stuff, I am going to go ahead and predict that no single NFT is going to sell for more than $25 million this year on any platform. So whether we're talking about a traditional auction house like Christie's or Sotheby's or an online NFT exchange like OpenSea or SuperRare. So that, my friend, seems to be the riskiest prediction of them all so far, because we were just talking about Beeple, Ad Nauseum, whose Everyday's NFT compilation sold for $69.3 million last year. And then just last month, the artist Pac sold 266,445 shares of an NFT for $91.8 million on Nifty Gateway, which is a bigger result than Jeff Koons has ever achieved at auction. So since it seems like people enjoy spending unholy gobs of money on NFTs for notoriety's sake, if nothing else, why are you so sure of this prediction? Well, I'm not so sure of it. I think it's very likely that I can end up being wrong. I think that the actual version of this that I put in print ended with something like never underestimate the wealth or marketing prowess or self-dealing capacity of big crypto. But I think that it's important to take a step back from those very big numbers and look at what's happened in the rest of the field. First of all, the whole POC transaction that you mentioned, if you can explain to a layman what happened there, I applaud you because I think it's complicated enough to say that it is not a single work. Like you can sort of reverse engineer your way into writing a term paper about how it qualifies as a single work, but I think it's a little too far beyond the pale to actually really qualify for that designation. So if you take that out, then you go down to the $69 million Beeple NFT. And the thing about that particular sale is that it is still multiples higher than anything else that sold in the NFT realm last year. So if you just look at what crypto heads were referred to as one of one NFTs, meaning they're not part of a larger series or an addition of some kind, the most expensive of those was only $6.6 .6 million. And that was another Beeple, incidentally. 
if you sort of expand your definition a little bit and you say, okay, well, it doesn't have to be a one-of-one one NFT, it could be a part of a larger series, then the most expensive second place NFT becomes what became known kind of within crypto circles as the COVID alien CryptoPunk, which was sold in a Sotheby's auction for $11.75 million. Regardless of which one of those you want to look at, you're talking about the second highest NFT sold last year being somewhere between one-sixth and one-tenth the price of every day's. And when you kind of reframe the conversation through that lens, I think it becomes a lot less likely that somebody is going to blow out of the gates and pay, say, $70 million or more for an NFT in the next 12 months. Well, so Tiresias, I mean, I mean, Tim, it has been an honor, as always, to hear your occult vibrations about the year to come. Uh, I think it's going to be really exciting to see which of these pan out. I'm excited to see what new prodigy of biblical proportions like NFTs is going to spring up in 2022. But, you know, putting aside your eerie gift of foresight, is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to in 2022 yourself on a, you know, a human, personal, journalistic Tim level? Well, I'll just say this. I think that last year was a much more difficult year than I think a lot of us had hoped it would be. It certainly was for me personally on a lot of levels. I am looking forward to the idea that once we get through this Omicron surge, there is at least some reason to believe that maybe we can have more than like a momentary respite from the way that we've all been living for the past two plus years under like the constant haze of illness and death. And uh, maybe we can actually kind of relax and maybe have a little fun. You mean just in time for the midterm elections, right? Oh, Andrew, don't do that. Come on. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manley, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.